This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Last time on Ear Witness. You are in a position now to be one of two things, okay? You can either be a witness or you can be a defender. Ardragus was in his wheelchair sitting there. And he looked at me and he said, listen, I'm not going to lie for anybody. I would happy to give to Forrest up in a heartbeat, except it would be a lie and I'm not going to lie. I said, all right, well, they're going to wheel you to jail and they're going to charge you with capital murder, which is a death penalty offense. And he goes, I wasn't there. Tell them to take me to jail. And they did. Charged with capital murder of a law enforcement officer are 22-year-old Torfarest Johnson, 21-year-old Ardragus Ford, 23-year-old Oman Berry, and 21-year-old Quintez Wilson. They are held without bond. Evidence-wise, well, we had virtually no evidence. We had the word of a 15-year-old who told lies, a, a, a lot of lies. I've lied, I've lied, I've lied. We had this table empty, wasn't nothing on it, and we were still trying to try that case. And we were like, man, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna win this? It's 1997, two years after Deputy Bill Hardy was killed. Forrest Johnson and Ardragus Ford are headed to trial for the murder. And so far, the only evidence the state has presented connecting them to the crime is the changing story of Yolanda Chambers. But there was something else, something detectives had known about for two years, something they kept quiet until now. This is Sergeant Tom Salter, Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. 
President in the room are Sergeant Tony Richardson and Mrs. Violet Ellison and her daughter Katrina Ellison. Violet Ellison, a 53-year-old black woman, and her 16-year-old daughter Katrina met with detectives Tony Richardson and Tom Salter at the sheriff's office. Violet Ellison, who knew Deputy Hardy, came forward a few weeks after Hardy's murder. She called investigators seven days after the governor announced an additional $10,000 for information, bringing the total reward offered in the case to $20,000. Her recorded interview with detectives is less than seven minutes long. Ms. Ellison, would you tell us about the information that you have for us? Um, a guy named Fred, I'm not sure of his last name, called my daughter, uh, Katrina Ellison, on 8-3. Violet Ellison says some guys in the jail were asking Katrina to make three-way calls for them so they'd only have to pay for the original call to Katrina. They didn't want to keep feeding quarters into the payphone. One of those guys was named Fred. And he asked my daughter to uh, use her three-way to call for his homeboy, and he named the fellow's name as Tavares Johnson. And she Violet Ellison says her daughter dialed the number of a girl named Daisy to create a three-way call. In the jail... Fred handed the phone to Taforest so that he could talk to Daisy. Back in the Ellison house, once Katrina heard the three-way call go through, she put the phone down and walked away. But her mom, Violet Ellison, picked it up and listened in. He said that on the night of that, uh, the, the incident... Violet Ellison tells detectives that she heard Taforest Johnson telling Daisy what happened the night of Deputy Bill Hardy's murder. I've listened to this recording over a dozen times, and it's not easy to follow. But in summary, Violet says that Taforest described following a man they planned to rob. This man had a girl with him, and the girl had a gun. A shot was fired, one shot that was fired. And Deputy Hardy heard the commotion and came out to investigate. And that's when um, Tavares Johnson shot one time and he named another guy, which was um, who? Quintez. Both of them shot. She says she overheard to Forrest Johnson say that he and Quintez Wilson each fired one shot at Deputy Hardy. At this point, Quintez Wilson was also in jail, charged with Hardy's murder. The story Violet Ellison tells police is disjointed. There are a lot of details that are similar to the facts about the case that were reported in the news, but others that don't fit the evidence at the crime scene. And after less than seven minutes, detectives say they have no further questions for Violet Ellison and her daughter. And that makes a lot of sense. Do you think of anything to ask? Okay. 
two years after Violet Ellison first comes to police, the state is preparing to put Ardragus Ford and Taforis Johnson on trial. But Yolanda Chambers is falling apart. She's recanted her testimony under oath, and she doesn't always show up to court when she's supposed to be there. It's then, in their time of need, two years later, that detectives suddenly remember Violet Ellison's statements. Violet Ellison walk in that door and stand up on this table and say what she said. We got a full table now. We got all the evidence we need. Well, not that we need, we'd like to have a lot more, but we got, we got evidence. Violet Ellison would become the state's star witness in the trial against DeForest Johnson. And her ear witness testimony would be the key evidence linking him to Deputy Hardy's murder. But there wouldn't be just one trial for the murder of Deputy Hardy, or two, or even three. The state will pursue four capital murder trials. And at each of these four trials, the state will present separate, mutually exclusive theories about who pulled the trigger and fired the fatal shots. I'm Beth Shelburne. This is Ear Witness. Chapter 5, Anybody Will Do. If Tony Richardson was initially enthusiastic about Violet Ellison's revelations, I can't tell by the investigative file. He wrote a report about the meeting he had with her. It's just seven sentences long, concluding, the conversation concerned the crime. That's it. Detectives and prosecutors do not publicly mention Violet Ellison or her claims for the next two years, It's like they just forgot about her. The most glaring example of this. Detective Richardson testifies at a grand jury hearing five months after his conversation with Violet Ellison. He says under oath that all four men charged with capital murder were in the back parking lot of the Crown Sterling Suites when Hardy was killed. But, he says, Omar Berry and Ardragus Ford were the shooters. This story is based on one of his conversations with Yolanda Chambers. And Detective Richardson tells the grand jury, there is no doubt that Yolanda Chambers is telling us the truth. There is no mention of Violet Ellison until Taforest is on trial. But the state puts Ardragus Ford on trial first. My grandmother spent everything she had, everything that a poor woman had, she spent our money to defend him, you know, to get him the, you know, best representation she could. 
Ardragus's cousin, Nicole Blunt Kirksey, comes to my house to talk to me about the case. She's wearing a patterned dress and cowboy boots. Her hair is pulled back into a high bun. For many years, she grew up in the same house as Ardragus. Their mothers are sisters. It was a lot of money for a poor family. It really was. A lot of, my grandmother um, had a lot of money saved back then, even poor people. Like, she didn't spend everything she had. She always put money back. She worked for Union Envelope, which was a, like a factory over in Pratt City for years. And then she used to wash clothes and clean houses for people. And so she just tucked a lot of that money. She just tucked it away. And she exhausted just about everything to try to get him the representation that he needed for that trial. Other than my grandmother's money, I mean, we had barbecues and just, you know, things to raise money so that we could uh, pay the attorney. Ardragus's mom, Joyce, tells me the same thing. So you had to raise some of the money. Some of it, yeah. Do you remember how much you ended up paying? Looks like, I don't know if... Might have been over 40000 or something more. Oh. That's a lot of money. It was. Ardragus' family hires Richard Jaffe, a renowned defense attorney who had represented dozens of people facing the death penalty. To Forrest Johnson's cousin, Antonio Green, remembers trying to figure out what his family could do to get to Forrest the best legal defense available. One of the prominent attorneys during that time, me and my uncle went and talked to him about taking this case for the fires during that time. And he told us, right there sitting in his office, he said, bring him a $10,000 retainer and he'll bring our loved one home. Of course, $10,000, he might well say $10 million at that time to me, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, we just we just didn't have it, couldn't do it. Everybody scratching to make it and feed the family. And, and we all understood that because I'm thinking, OK, I, I got to get a loan. I got to do, you know, something. But and that, that was what was amazing, too, Bill. Tafaris, he understood that. He was like, because don't worry about that. I'm going to be all right. I didn't do this. You know, that was his whole thing. They're not going to lock me up because I didn't do this. Judge Alfred Bayhackle appoints two attorneys to represent Taforest, a sharply dressed 32-year-old black man named Daryl Bender, and Erskine Mathis, a white, middle-aged former police officer with a thick mustache. In 1997, Alabama paid appointed defense attorneys just $20 an hour for work outside the courtroom, with a cap of $1,000. Most appointed lawyers can't afford to work for free, so this very low cap limited how well they could prepare for trial. Ardragus Ford is first to go to trial in November of 1997. There's a photo of him in the newspaper. He's sitting in his wheelchair in court wearing a starched collared shirt and dark blazer. The junior prosecutor on the case is a 34-year-old black man named Theo Lawson. Jeff Wallace is the lead prosecutor. He's tall, white, 
a commanding figure in the courtroom, 43 years old, 12 years into his career. I think my reputation was of being a tough prosecutor, meaning if I had the case, I, I pushed it to his limits. And I think my re reputation might be that I was maybe a little too tough sometimes. I hope that's not true, but I'm afraid it might be true. Jeff Wallace was assigned to major cases and aggressively sought to please his boss, D.A. David Barber, who was a tough-on-crime leader focused on getting convictions. And this case was personal for Jeff Wallace. He knew the victim. Every prosecutor who is diligent, works closely with the police. And when something happens to one of them, uh, you're not one of the boys in blue, as they say, but uh, they're your friends. So when this happened to Deputy Hardy, it got my attention. The trial against Ardragus Ford starts at 1.50 p.m. on November 5th. In a short opening statement, the prosecution summarizes the crime for the jury arguing that Ardragus Ford is guilty of capital murder. They don't mention a motive. Afterwards, Jeff Wallace calls the county's chief medical examiner to the stand. He explains that Hardy's wounds were at an upward angle through his head. Jeff Wallace argues this would be consistent with Ardragus firing the shots from his wheelchair. Prosecutors also call Yolanda Chambers as a witness, even though she recanted her story in court a year ago. Since then, she's gone back to saying that she was there when Hardy was killed. She now says she saw Ardragus Ford fire at least one shot. Richard Jaffe, Ardragus's lawyer, argues that if the hotel witnesses had seen Ardragus Ford commit the crime, they would have seen this. Ardragus Ford wheeling up about 30 feet of an incline in his wheelchair, somehow finding an ability to shoot two shots into Deputy Hardy, then be wheeled down by someone all the way back to their car. The wheelchair would have had to have been put in there. Ardragus would have had to have been physically put into the driver's seat DeForest would have had to have gotten back into the passenger seat, and then they would have driven off, and that would have taken at least a minute or two, minimum. Of course, no one at the hotel saw anything like that. The only thing they had on our Dragas Ford was Yolanda Chambers. Jaffe calls witnesses to the stand who saw our Dragas at T's place at the same time that Deputy Hardy was shot. We didn't call any witnesses other than alibi witnesses. The key decision the jury has to make, do they believe Yolanda Chambers' testimony that Ardragus killed Deputy Hardy behind the Crown Sterling Suites? Or do they believe the three alibi witnesses who say he was at T's place at the same time that Deputy Hardy was murdered? The jury votes 10 to 2 to acquit Ardragus Ford, but that's not enough. Murder trials require a unanimous verdict. Since this decision was split, Judge Bayhackle declares a mistrial. 
but Ardragus Ford is not set free. The state plans to try him a second time. later, the first trial against DeForest Johnson begins. Here's DeForest's cousin, Antonio Green. I remember, me personally, myself, I was very optimistic. I was very optimistic simply because I knew what they had, which was nothing as far as evidence goes. I'm like, okay, well, this is just a part of the process. They'll hear the evidence or like thereof, and we'll, we'll be going home, you know, when this is all over. But as the days went on, from the first couple of days of the trial, you could see a really different environment in the courtroom. The only video from the trial I've seen is a short TV news clip. It's filmed through a window on the courtroom door, and DeForest looks so young, much younger than 24. He's clean-shaven, baby-faced, dressed for court in a striped, button-down shirt and tie with a gray blazer. He looks around the courtroom. Maybe he's nervous, but then he lights up with a huge smile when he sees a family member who comes over to speak with him. The state's lead prosecutor, Jeff Wallace, gets up in front of the jury— just two weeks earlier, he argued that Ardragus Ford shot Deputy Hardy. But now, he tells a completely different story. He says that DeForest Johnson shot Hardy. The theory that the shooter was seated in a wheelchair is never mentioned. And Yolanda Chambers never sets foot in the courtroom. Instead, the prosecution tells the jury in opening statements that they will hear evidence that will convince them beyond a reasonable doubt that DeForest shot and killed Deputy Hardy. Then, Jeff Wallace introduces the state's new star witness, Violet Ellison. She tells the jury she eavesdropped on several three-way calls because she was concerned about her daughter talking to people at the jail and because she's naturally nosy. She says she contacted detectives six days after she listened in on the first call because she couldn't sleep after hearing information about the murder of Deputy Bill Hardy. On the stand, Violet Ellison tells the jury that she overheard DeForest say these words. I shot the fucker in the head, and I saw his head go back, and he fell. And he shouldn't have got in my business messing up my shit. There was no mention of I shot the fucker in the head or anything like that in Violet Ellison's original recorded statement to police. She did write the statement down in notes on the back of an envelope that she submitted to police but she gave them these notes six weeks after her first recorded statement. On the stand, she says she jotted down the notes while she listened in on the call between Teforest and Daisy and then copied the notes onto a sheet of paper. 
But it's hard for me to believe that these notes were written during the phone call she claims she overheard. For example, Violet Ellison is adamant in her testimony that she heard Toforest only use his first name, but her notes refer to him as Johnson. If she was just writing down what she heard while she heard it, why wouldn't she have written Toforest? How would she have known his last name? Toforest's attorneys also say that what Violet Ellison heard was just one side of a conversation. They say Toforest was telling Daisy what he was accused of doing, not what he did. He was responding to her question, why are you in jail? But when Daryl Bender questions Violet Ellison, she tells him she's positive that Daisy never asked Toforest why he was in jail. But then she also says that she didn't pay any attention to Daisy's side of the conversation because she was only interested in what Toforest had to say. If this feels confusing to you, welcome. I've been trying to make this make sense for two years. How can Violet Ellison insist that she knows what Daisy did or did not say, while also admitting that she only listened to one side of the conversation? Antonio Green, Toforest's cousin, remembers watching Violet Ellison on the stand. The only evidence supposedly they had against him was this ear witness who had never heard him speak before, who had no idea who he was. But to sit in there and see how the system from, you know, the judge, the prosecutors and all that pushed that case towards him. I mean, constantly. It was, he did it. We got the right one. He did it. Forget the evidence. Don't worry about that. We just telling you he did it. It's pretty much as, as all they had. When Violet Ellison finishes testifying, Daisy Williams takes the stand. She says Forrest did not admit to the murder on that phone call, and she never heard him say the things Violet Ellison claimed to overhear. So, Violet Ellison, a friend of the victim, says she heard one thing. Daisy Williams, a friend of the accused, says she heard another. The case comes down to who the jury will believe. After five days of testimony, to Forrest's supporters nervously wait as the jury begins to deliberate. And once again, the jury cannot reach a unanimous decision. Nine jurors vote to convict, but three others are not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. The judge declares a mistrial. They deliberated and they couldn't come to a verdict, so... They took him back, they kept him locked up, and immediately pretty much scheduled another date for a second trial. So there wasn't really any time to celebrate? Oh, no, 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 it wasn't any of that. And then, even then, I didn't think, I didn't look at it as uh, any any type of victory because an innocent man should be found innocent.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive Budget Beach Finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Generations Riviera Maya Resort and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Yeah. I'm Jeff Wallace. Nice to see you, Jeff. I'm Beth Beth Shelburne. You can call me Beth. Can I call you Jeff? Please. Okay, great. Jeff Wallace prosecuted both to Forrest and Ardragus. When I emailed him to set up an interview, he asked me to meet him at the large Methodist church he attends in a Birmingham suburb. He's now retired but spent 25 years as a prosecutor in Jefferson County. We record the interview in the church's empty sanctuary. He tells me he prefers to do interviews standing up because of all of his courtroom experience. So we're standing in this sanctuary at the altar facing each other, having this conversation in front of a giant pipe organ. The way we're set up, it feels like we're either here to debate or get married. Anyway, this is why the recording sounds a little echoey. We had a weak case. It's based on the testimony of one witness. Jeff Wallace remembers that the case against DeForest Johnson hinged on the testimony of Violet Ellison. That is extremely strong evidence if it's believed. Of course, the question becomes, do you believe that evidence? Well, to believe that evidence, you have to believe Ms. Ellison. To believe Ms. Ellison, you have to look at, at the facts, how, how she said it happened. DeForest's second trial begins eight months after the first one ends in a mistrial. Jeff Wallace is the lead prosecutor. Again, he calls Violet Ellison to the stand, where she testifies that she overheard DeForest admit to Hardy's murder on a three-way phone call. Jeff Wallace says Violet Ellison listened in on the calls because she was concerned about her daughter. And once again, DeForest's attorneys call Daisy Williams, who maintains that DeForest never confessed to the murder. DeForest's lawyer, Daryl Bender, asks Daisy, did he describe to you the series of events that he said had occurred? Daisy, no. Bender, did he tell you where this happened? Again, Daisy, no. Bender, did he tell you that he had killed somebody? Daisy, no, sir. 
Jeff Wallace tries to cast doubt on Daisy's testimony. He says, maybe Daisy is testifying about a different call, or maybe she's just the wrong Daisy. Yet again, it's one witness's word against another. Right before Jeff Wallace addresses the jury for closing statements, he picks up a piece of evidence, Deputy Hardy's hat, the one that he would always wear on duty, the one he was wearing when he was shot. It has a bullet hole through the brim. Jeff Wallace argues that Violet Ellison heard to Forrest Johnson bragging about what he did. Wallace turns to the jury and says, let me read you the words, his words, not mine. I shot the fucker in the head. I saw his head go back and he fell. He should never have got in my business, messing up my shit. He says these words to the jury, like this is an on-the-record statement directly from to Forrest Johnson, when it's really Violet Ellison's testimony of what she says she overheard. However it occurred, Wallace continues, he's proud of his role in it, and don't forget that. No matter how many shots were fired, he's proud of the one he put into Deputy Hardy's head. Here's his respect for Bill Hardy. Wallace throws Hardy's hat onto the courtroom floor. He's as guilty as they come. Judge Bayhackle gives the jury instructions to carefully consider all of the evidence. They begin deliberations at 4.25 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. DeForest's family waits for the verdict. He's a defendant, but he's innocent until proven guilty. That didn't seem to be the case in the courtroom during that time. It was like, you have to go above and beyond to prove you're innocent, because as of right now, you're guilty. And that was a, that was a, that was a dark feeling in there. You couldn't, you couldn't get around it. Two and a half hours later, at 7.10 p.m., the jurors file back into the courtroom with their decision. DeForest Johnson is found guilty of capital murder. Judge Bayhackle schedules the penalty phase for the following Monday. This is when the jury will decide to Forrest's fate. Should he be sent to prison for life without parole or put to death for Hardy's murder? The penalty phase of a capital murder case represents the highest stakes in our criminal justice system. Defense attorneys often call lots of witnesses and sometimes spend weeks presenting evidence to try to convince the jury to spare their client's life. The penalty phase hearing for DeForest Johnson lasts only 80 minutes. DeForest's attorneys call three members of his family to testify. When Erskine Mathis asks DeForest's grandmother, you know what we're here for today? She answers, well, yeah, I guess. Not really, though. It's clear Mathis and Bender didn't adequately prepare her for the hearing. 
On the stand, Tafora's mother, Donna, cries so hard she can barely hold her head up. At one point, Mathis says to her, Listen to me. Can you raise your head up and look at me? Donna Johnson tells the jury through her tears, Just don't give my baby no electric chair. The final witness is DeForest's cousin, Antonio Green. I'm 52 years old, and until today, that's probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was get on that stand and beg for his life. The jury deliberates DeForest's fate for over five hours. In the decision about whether or not DeForest should live or die, All of the jurors don't have to agree. A unanimous vote is needed for guilt or innocence, but a jury in Alabama can sentence a person to death with a majority vote of 10 to 2. And just after 5 p.m., they reach a decision with the minimum number of votes needed, 10 to 2, the jury recommends the death penalty. Judge Alfred Bayhackle affirms the recommendation that Taforest Johnson be executed for the murder of Deputy Bill Hardy. One newspaper reports that Taforest sat motionless as the jury's recommendation was read, appearing to be stunned. Taforest's mother Donna screamed, No, no, no. DeForest's oldest daughter, Shanae, was in the courtroom that day. She was six years old at the time. And I just kept kind of trying to get his attention and blurting out how nice he looked in his suit. And so finally, the judge kind of had me escorted out of the the courtroom. But there's a little small window. um, And my cousin had me on his shoulders. He escorted me out. He had me on his shoulders so I could just peek through and see my dad through that little small courtroom window. Um, And ironically so, that was my last memory of him in the free world. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. So my thing is this, why didn't Dara Bender reach out to me for to Flores? Felonique Sanders, a.k.a. Queasy, still wonders why Taforest's attorneys didn't call her or Mama Cat to testify at his second trial like they did in the first one. That, that makes me feel like we failed them because we saw them and we wasn't the only one. So it's like what we said didn't even matter. Like, they didn't take it into consideration. Mama Cat and Queasy were important alibi witnesses at his first trial, who saw him at T's place the night Hardy was murdered. And their testimony may have created enough reasonable doubt to prevent a guilty verdict. Instead, DeForest's attorneys called two other witnesses from T's, but these witnesses didn't seem well-prepared and were flustered on the stand. I wondered the same about Marshall Kelly Cummings, the Keebler cookie guy. Why didn't they call him as a witness in the second trial? What he saw out the window, one person slowly driving away in a copper-colored car, that contradicted the state's story, but the jury that sentenced DeForest to death never heard from him. The third difference between DeForest's first and second trials involves LaTanya Henderson, the friend of Yolanda Chambers, who was in the car with Teforest and Ardragas after they left T's place. Remember, LaTanya was facing a charge of hindering prosecution. She went to jail for five months because she refused to go along with Yolanda Chambers' story. At the time of Teforest's second trial, LaTanya was still facing this charge when prosecutor Jeff Wallace called her as a witness. Right before the jurors were brought into the courtroom, Jeff Wallace told the judge, the state wants to secure her testimony, and in that regard, we are dismissing her hindering prosecution case. For years, LaTanya said that she didn't know anything about Deputy Hardy's murder, and it was only just before she took the stand for the prosecution that the state dropped the felony charge against her. Poof, like magic. When she took the stand, LaTanya stuck to her story, that she wasn't there when Hardy was murdered, that no one in Ardragas's car talked about killing anyone. But she did say that she had a gun that night, and so did to Forrest. On the stand, she said she hid her gun on the tire of another car and that Ardragas, Yolanda, and Teforest hid the other gun under the dashboard. 
Police searched Ardragas's car after they impounded it. They never found a gun. But LaTanya's testimony put a gun into Forrest's hand on the night of the murder, and this likely stuck with the jury. And finally, to Forrest's lawyers called an unexpected witness. The thing that happened to me that is the most just stunning is putting Yolanda Chambers on the, on the stand in the defense case. Derek Drennan was a young lawyer working with Jaffe on Ardragas' case. At the time, both attorneys were paying close attention to Teforis trials. When I first read the trial transcript, I wondered, why would the defense call Yolanda Chambers to the stand? And Derek had the same question as he watched it unfold. Why would you call the only person on the planet who will testify under oath that your client was there, you know, um, and lie, I mean, knowing they're lying about it. Yolanda testified that she was at the scene of the crime with Teforest, LaTanya, and Ardragas. She said it was Ardragas, not Teforest, who killed Deputy Hardy. But still, her testimony directly contradicted Teforest's alibi that he was at T's place. They're asking a jury to believe her when she says, you know, Johnson didn't shoot him, Ford did. I don't know how that could that could be justified. There's nobody on the planet that's going to put your client on that parking lot that night except for Yolanda Chambers. Nobody will. And to put her up there to say that their client was innocent, because Ford did it, uh, just beyond me. You know, I, that to me is just, it's just really inexplicable. Prosecutor Jeff Wallace seized on this at trial. In his closing statement, he told the jury, if you go back in the jury room and decide that Yolanda Chambers ought not to have been allowed to testify because she's a liar or whatever you might decide about her, that's okay. State didn't call her. The defense did. I want you to remember that. I called both of Teforest's original trial lawyers to ask about the decisions they made in defending Teforest, but neither would sit down with me for an interview. We forget sometimes that there was a third person on that phone who told him it discredits what this lady says she heard. You know what I mean? And now, how close? How much closer can you get than that? You're the third party in that three-way conversation. And you say, no, that's not what it was. I needed to find the person on the other end of the phone call that Violet Ellison overheard. The person who actually talked to Teforest, Daisy Williams. Daisy was 19 when she testified at Teforest's second trial. She's now in her mid-40s and has never spoken publicly about the case. But she agrees to come to my house to talk. I'm a mechanic. How did you get into being a mechanic and to working on cars? I was a tomboy growing up. I, I, I love cars. I have a 71 Ford, 
at home now that I'm trying to restore. I love working on them. I love, you know, going to like the car races and everything. We settle in on the couch and talk for over an hour. Tavares is a, a, a real good person. He got a real good heart. Daisy tells me Forest was friends with her two brothers, Charles and Eugene. They used to hang out and play basketball when they were growing up in Pratt City. And her story about what happened on that phone call is consistent. What she tells me more than 25 years later doesn't vary from what she said on the stand. My cousin actually called me because he was in the county jail at the time. Mm-hmm. And who was that? Was that Fred? Fred Carter. Okay, yeah. So when um, that initial call um, came to you, I guess Fred had called Katrina, mm-hmm. Violet Ellison's daughter, and then she made the three-way call to connect him to you. Yes. And then he put DeForest on. Is that how it went? Yes. He um, Actually, like I said, he uh, told me, he was like, guess who up here with me? And he knew, you know, we all grew up in Pratt City together. And he was like, Tafaris. And I was like, for real? And he was like, he gave Tafaris the phone and let me talk to him. So I'm talking to him like, man, what's going on? And he told me, I've been accused of, you know, killing somebody. And I was like, man, you got a lawyer? And he was like, yeah, and we left it at that. We didn't go no further with that conversation about the death that it shared. He said he was accused, and that's all he said to me. Why did the jury believe this woman who eavesdrop on the call over you who actually had on the call. I don't understand. I never understood it. You know, they went on hearsay. They went on what she said she overheard. They didn't actually listen to me. I was young. So I feel like by me being young, they didn't actually listen to me. Oh, well, she just, you know, somebody he, you know, no, she probably just saying something. And that's how I felt. There are two recurring questions that come up when Taforis' family and friends talk with me about the case. The first, why isn't Violet Ellison's testimony hearsay? Usually something that someone overheard is considered hearsay and not admissible as evidence in court. Taforis' lawyers tried to argue that Violet Ellison's testimony was hearsay to get it thrown out. But the judge overruled them. It turns out there is an exception to the hearsay rule when someone claims to overhear the defendant admitting to the crime. The second, isn't the jail supposed to record phone calls? According to testimony from a jail supervisor, the phones in the Jefferson County Jail weren't equipped with the ability to record in 1995. One of the hardest things to comprehend about this case is what happens 10 months after Taforce Johnson was convicted and sentenced to death. In June of 1999, the state once again tries to convict Ardragus Ford. Jeff Wallace prosecutes the Hardy case for the fourth time. And the state's star witness, Yolanda Chambers, Violet Ellison is never even mentioned. And Wallace presents yet another theory of the crime, a fifth theory. At the grand jury hearing, the state argued that Ardragus and Omar Berry killed Deputy Hardy. Then, at Ardragus's first trial, 
Jeff Wallace said Ardragus was the only person who killed Deputy Hardy. Then at DeForest's first trial a month later, he argued that DeForest was the only shooter. A year later, when DeForest was tried a second time, the state said DeForest fired a shot and so did Quintez Wilson. But, they said, Wilson was not being tried because of a lack of evidence. And finally, after DeForest Johnson was sentenced to death, and after Jeff Wallace characterized Yolanda Chambers as a liar, he turns around and uses Yolanda as his own star witness against Ardragus Ford. The jury in Ardragus' second trial deliberates for less than an hour and declares him not guilty. Ardragus is acquitted. I talked to his cousin, Nicole, about that moment. I wonder how that made you feel. I mean, did it make you feel like the system worked, that Ardragus was acquitted? It didn't make me feel like the system worked. It, it showed me that Richard Jaffe did a wonderful job defending him. Ardragus and Teforest had the same alibi. Nobody denies that they were together the night Hardy was killed. But there was a major difference between their cases. Ardragus's family was able to pay for a renowned attorney, and Teforest's family wasn't. Meanwhile, prosecutors had a powerful tool at their disposal, the ability to use multiple theories to get the outcome they were seeking, someone to go down for Hardy's murder. No prosecutors should be allowed to, in any case, much less a death penalty case, to try two different defendants for the same crime using a different theory and different sets of witnesses, as if they're staging two Broadway plays of the same scenario. Richard Jaffe, Ardragus' lawyer. This case is all about alternative worlds that are in conflict with each other and in conflict with truth and in conflict with what our justice system stands for. Arguing inconsistent theories isn't technically illegal, but I mean, come on, five different theories? There is no way all five of these theories can be true. These theories are mutually exclusive, in conflict with each other. I asked Jeff Wallace to explain how could he argue these mutually exclusive theories against two different people for the same crime. It's a valid question, but it's not the uh, right question. The right question is whether or not we argued something that was supported by the evidence in that trial. But help me understand how, as a prosecutor, you can argue that one person is the gunman in the killing of a deputy. He's convicted and sentenced to death. And then at a subsequent trial, argue that another person was the shooter. Well, it would not be, if I can be hyper-technical, it would not be the shooter of the same bullet. Jeff Wallace gives me a long-winded explanation about how two people could be guilty of the same crime if, for example, one person shoots a victim and another fires a shot 
but the bullet flies off into space. But that's not what Jeff Wallace argued at trial. Kills the victim. You don't have to decide which one fired the shot. They're both guilty. But the evidence showed that there was only one gun and one gunman, right? Well, I don't know if you could say that. I think that's what the firearms expert testified to. He did. A firearms examiner looked at the two shell casings found at the murder scene and determined they had been fired from the same 9mm pistol, indicating there was only one shooter. I keep pressing him. I want Jeff Wallace to tell me how he squared in his own mind these contradictory theories about who fired the fatal shots. Jeff and I go round and round. In theory, prosecutors are employed to seek the truth. They don't have a mandate to obtain convictions. But the law allowed him to do what he did. And Jeff Wallace told me himself he was known to push a case to its limits. I'm afraid that uh, my reputation was that I was fairly mean. Uh, I tried to follow all the rules. Tried to do exactly what the boss wanted done, and so I tried to follow all orders. Uh, and now I wish I'd been a little more yielding sometimes. Wish I'd seen a little more gray. But I was fairly black and white, and, and I'm afraid I was fairly mean, and I'm not necessarily proud of that. As Forrest's family watched their worst nightmare unfold, it was clear that he wasn't the only one failed by these trials. They also thought about Deputy Bill Hardy and his family. You know, the, the victim's family deserved to know what happened to their loved one. But they, they get no, no justice, no peace out of a wrongful conviction. You know, and this is simply a case of just anybody will do. And looking at it from the inside, it, it seems like the whole thing was just put together like a puzzle. All this is going on in a court of law. That's supposed to be the most honest place in our country. After he's sentenced to death, correctional officers put to Forrest in a van and drive him 200 miles south of Birmingham. He arrives at Holman Prison and is assigned a five-by-eight cell on death row, where he'll spend 23 hours a day. Roaches crawl everywhere, and there's no air conditioning in the sweltering Alabama heat. As months go by, DeForest learns to survive in this agonizing space. But he also sees prison guards take men from their cells and walk them around the corner to the death chamber. And he wonders when they are coming for him. Is he next? He just started crying, and I asked him what was wrong, and he said that he had just assumed that they could come any minute and take him to be executed. That's next time. Ear Witness is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Executive producers are Jason Flom, Jeff Kempler, Kevin Wardus, and me, Beth Shelburne. 
The investigative reporting for this series was done by me and Mara McNamara. Producers are Mara McNamara, Hannah Beal, and Jackie Polly. Kara Kornhaber is our senior producer. Britt Spangler is our sound designer. Additional story editing from Marie Sutton. Fact check help from Catherine Newhan. And special thanks to DeForest Johnson's legal defense team. You can follow the show on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. To see behind-the-scenes content from our investigation, visit lavaforgood.com slash earwitness. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.